You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello friends, how are you? Good to have your company again and I hope today finds you well. So as you've probably gathered from the title, this episode will be looking at something Harry Potter. However, today is a little bit unusual in the sense that we'll be exploring a particular scene in Harry Potter rather than a theme. Those of you who know the story of Harry Potter will remember that one of the most climatic scenes in the seven-part saga is the final battle of Hogwarts, which takes place in the sort of final chapters of Book 7. In this scene, uh, pretty much all the bad guys are joined forces to do battle with all the good guys, and the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry is the battleground. For most of us, or at least for me, it is epic and thrilling, especially the way it is presented in the movie. But might I suggest that the scene is also quite prophetic for the situation the church finds herself in today. By prophetic, I don't necessarily mean in the sense of, you know, like predicting the future, though that wouldn't be totally incorrect either. Rather, by prophetic, I mean the way this scene can bring into consciousness something that's happening today, namely the ferocity and scale of spiritual battle assailing the church all around the world. Hmm. First, as a refresher, let me recap the storyline leading up to this scene. So it's near the end of the saga, and Voldemort at this point is both potent and desperate. He realises now that Harry and his companions are hunting down his horcruxes one by one, fearing that if Harry should destroy all his horcruxes, he too would diminish. Just in case you've forgotten, to gain immortality, Voldemort had split his soul into seven horcruxes, so that he would have a means to live on even if his body is destroyed. The horcruxes are separate objects like goblets and diaries and lockets. And one of the final horcruxes is the Diadem of Ravenclaw, hidden within Hogwarts somewhere. So Voldemort is pretty keen to recover it before Harry gets to it first. And so, Voldemort unleashes all hell upon Hogwarts Castle, sending all his Death Eaters and all manner of foul beasts like spiders and so forth into it. In defence of the castle, Professor McGonagall rallies all the students and staff together, charging them with the defence of the castle according to whatever means was necessary. Everyone is rallied to fight, including the school ghosts and the gargoyles. The teachers together point their wands towards the sky and cast a sort of protective bubble around the entire school, a bit like a deflector shield if you're a Star Wars fan. They know this shield cannot keep Voldemort out forever, but it can certainly slow him down, and indeed, it is able to deflect the initial onslaught of curses thrown at it. And so the siege commences, and there are heavy losses on both sides. Meanwhile, Harry and his friends are searching desperately for the lost diadem of Ravenclaw. But who could remember where it was kept? Okay, so how does this Siege of Hogwarts scene parallel the church today? In a number of ways. The first is that both Hogwarts and the school are being besieged by supernatural forces that are both malicious and intelligent. Second, that it is those who are unprepared and uninitiated that are called upon to defend their respective institutions. 
And thirdly, that in the midst of all the ferocious battle, the more urgent task is to recover lost treasure, hidden somewhere within the bowels of history. For Harry, this is the lost diadem of Ravenclaw. But what is the equivalent lost treasure for our church? Hmm, Pope Benedict might have a surprise for you. Okay, let's firstly focus on the fact that the forces assailing Hogwarts are both intelligent and malicious. How often do you remember that the church you are part of is in a constant state of spiritual battle? In episode 12, we had already looked at how the enemy is working hard to sow division within the church. But today, we'll focus on the external assault of the enemy. Scripture reminds us that the devil and his host of demons hates the church and actively works to undermine her. Now, attending your average subdued parish on a Sunday morning, you wouldn't think this to be the case, right? But this itself is a sort of false peace. For maybe a parish of apathetic Catholics is itself indicative of a spell cast by the enemy, blinding us from reality? For real reality is this. Christianity today is the most persecuted religion in the world, period. And our chief persecutors aren't militant atheists, terrorists, science or Marxism, but powers and principalities from heavenly places, as St. Paul reminds us. While it is certainly true that in countries like China and Nigeria and Iraq, Christians by the millions are experiencing persecution, it would be unwise to consider this merely incidental to local politics or local dictators. No, like Voldemort, the devil is as systematic as he is intelligent, more intelligent than we give him credit for. The devil certainly has a master plan to take down each one of us, but his primary wrath is still aimed at his ancient enemy, the church, wherever she is in the world. For the church is very much like Hogwarts Castle in Harry Potter, an ancient symbol of virtue that has given birth to generations of great wizards. The church is the greatest obstacle to Satan's kingdom, and in his eyes, it must fall. You know, there's a famous biblical passage that Catholics often quote for encouragement in such times. Matthew 16 says, And you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Often we think this is a promise that the church will always withstand the assaults of the enemy, and certainly this is true. The fact that our very corrupted church still stands 2,000 years later is itself a miracle. But look at the quote again. It says, And you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The roles are actually reversed. What Jesus is really saying is that the gates of hell cannot keep the church out meaning that we are the aggressors, and hell is the helpless defender. When Jesus ushered the kingdom of God here on earth, he invaded the kingdom of darkness, and it is the gates of hell that are now under siege. Do you see it? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The victory is ours already. Let's hold on to this fact, for this is the promise the enemy wants us to forget. He wants us to focus instead on the battered and bruised and bleeding casualties, like the bodies of the injured littering the corridors of Hogwarts during the siege. He wants us to despair and give in, but let's hold on to Jesus' promise of victory instead. For if God is fighting on our side, whom shall we fear? During his pontificate, Pope Benedict XVI warned us time and time again of a chief weapon the enemy was wielding against our society, especially here in the West. He called it the dictatorship of relativism. That very seductive idea that there is no such thing as objective truth. 
Have you ever considered that the church, particularly the Catholic Church, is the final institution in our society that still believes in and fights for objective truth? Over and against the wishy-washy relativism of our times that insists that all, all morality is subjective and that what is true for you may not be true for me, the church says, no, there is such thing as right and wrong. There is such thing as order and disorder. There is such thing as sin and virtue. Now the church is convinced of this not because her members are somehow more wise, but because she preserves the teaching of truth himself, Jesus Christ. Hence, the church's very teaching authority is a threat to the devil. In terms of today, I often think of the church as Gandalf on the bridge of Khazad-dum, standing between the fiery Balrog and the rest of the fellowship. The church stands alone, humbled yet unyielding, in a society that is bleeding valleys that have been foundational for generations. For example, never has there been a culture that seeks to cancel the distinctions between male and female, the role of mother and father, the centrality of marriage for our society. Never has there been a generation that actively doubts such truths exist. If we're not savvy to this sinister weapon of the enemy, we are not fighting smartly. As a start, let's remain vigilant to the dictatorship of relativism creeping into our own church culture, into our own homes, while at the same time working to dispel it in the wider society. Whether we passionately object to our lies within the chambers of politics or whisper it to staff in palliative care, let our message to the enemy remain the same. You shall not pass. The second feature of this Battle of Hogwarts scene I want to focus on is about the fact that it is pretty much the ordinary students that are called upon to defend the castle. These include Harry, Hermione and Ron, Dumbledore's army and a ragtag banding together of students from across the different houses. While there are others who join the fight like the Weasley family and teachers like McGonagall and Flitwick, the point I'm making is that the fate of Hogwarts was not placed in the hands of professional aurors or powerful wizards. It was placed in the hands of the young, the unprepared, the wizards and witches in training. This truth has great resonance with our situation today. You know, when COVID first broke out about this time last year, we were all forced into hard lockdown and no one knew how bad things were going to get. Preparing for the worst, these were the weeks where panic buying and violent queues and toilet paper rush was happening. I, along with a few brothers, dug up half our backyard in the seminary, there to prepare a vegetable patch, just in case we needed it to get through the dire months ahead. It's a little amusing now to think of the precautionary measures we all took, but we honestly didn't know how COVID would ravage life as we knew it. And certainly today, in May 2021, the threat is far from over. Okay, why am I sharing all this? Because around this time last year, I remember one morning in the shower thinking, how prepared am I to really live as a Christian during these testing times? How ready was I, if the situation called for it, to go out of my way to care for the hungry, the dying, the homeless, and the forgotten? See, there is always a temptation to think, ah, I'm only a brother, I'm just a student, a novice in training, a baby on the journey to priesthood. I don't really have to get involved because I'm just a trainee, I'm not there yet. Well, this of course is not at all true, because I am a Christian before I am an MGL brother. And as a Christian, every action, prayer, fast, and conversation can already have real and eternal impact, 
if it is done according to God's will. The threat of COVID helped me realize how much I had been living my Christian life on the back foot, thinking, ah, there's always tomorrow when I'm fully ready to be charitable and ready to be a saint. No, the grace of all of that is available now, and I can do the works of Jesus now if I say yes. And dear listener, you may be interested to know that this very Myth Pilgrim podcast is just one of the fruits of that yes. During lockdown last year, instead of convincing myself podcasting, I have no credibility next to my name, no real life experience and no social media presence, I started believing instead, let's offer what I can now, based on what I feel the Holy Spirit is prompting me to do, and leave the rest up to God. And hopefully, if you're listening to this episode, you agree that that was a good decision. But what does all this mean for yourself, dear pilgrim? Well, I suggest is to believe that in the midst of the assault against the church today, God can use you mightily. How ready are you, like the students, to take up your wand and to defend your castle? To call upon the saints rather than patronuses? To recite the word of God rather than spells? To wield the rosary rather than the sword, and to unite with all the baptized, not just those in Gryffindor. Wasn't that poetic? The Lord is inviting you now. And remember that the enemy is intelligent and shrewd. Study his tactics well. If he's besieging marriage and family in your community, then that's where each of us needs strengthening and vigilance. It may mean armoring ourselves with church teaching, sending an owl to our local MP, or simply marching with our feet. It might just mean reaching out to a family that's really struggling at the moment under the pressures of society. And if you feel you are too unholy, too unprepared to do this, draw strength from the students who fought valiantly to defend their castle from Voldemort. God always uses the small and weak and obedient to fight for his people. This was true of all the heroes in the Old Testament, and certainly true of that nobody carpenter from Nazareth. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you'd like to be notified by email every time a new episode is released, hop onto the website at themythpilgrim.com to register. The third feature of the Siege of Hogwarts scene I want to focus on is what I will refer to as the inner drama of the siege. While the outer drama of the siege is the hell-bent attack from Voldemort's forces, the inner drama of the siege is where our three heroes, Harry, Hermione and Ron, are working hard to recover the lost diadem of Ravenclaw. It is hidden somewhere inside Hogwarts, in an unknown or at least a forgotten location. Because it was one of the final Horcruxes that needed to be destroyed in order to vanquish Voldemort, finding the diadem was mission critical. And in the same way, it is also mission critical that the Catholic Church recovers its equivalent of the diadem of Ravenclaw, hidden somewhere deep within the vaults of our history and our tradition. What is the Church's precious diadem? Let's recall firstly that in the battle between the Church and Satan's kingdom, the Church is actually the aggressor, while Satan and his realm are on the defence. The times in our history when the Church has been on the back foot are the times we've forgotten the richness of our own tradition, or in this episode's context, where we've forgotten our own weapons. In reflecting on the situation of the Western Church today, Pope Benedict XVI suggests that there are two treasures, two weapons, 
that once recovered within the church will act as a devastating blow against the enemy. He suggests that these are beauty and the saints. He says, quote, I have often affirmed my conviction that the true apology of Christian faith, the most convincing demonstration of its truth, are the saints and the beauty that the faith has generated. End quote. Mm. Let's first look at beauty. It is no secret that the church has some of the most stunning art and music and literature in the world. Think of the paintings by Michelangelo, the sculptures by Bernini, soaring Gothic cathedrals, Gregorian chant, pipe organs and stained glass windows. Think of the literary works by Dante and Milton, and of course, Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. Consider also that these great works of beauty inspired entire nations and continents, not because they offered compelling truth or clever arguments. No, beauty works because, by its nature, it surpasses the faculties of the intellect and goes straight into the heart. Even a hardened intellectual atheist cannot not be moved by the passion of the Christ. Islamic noblemen in history have been converted to Christianity simply by walking inside the Hagia Sophia, and atheists converted by listening to Bach's St. John's Passion. See, reasoning and arguments, especially on moral truths, will only get us so far in a culture that denies absolute truth. The Catechism alone may not convince high schoolers that God is mercy, but listening to Les Miserables might. Hence, in the midst of all that is assailing the church today, there is an even more urgent need to recover our legacy of beauty. Dostoyevsky's famous proposition that beauty will save the world might ring true for us more than ever. The second great treasure of the church are actually the saints. Surprised? Well, consider how the lives and writings of the saints are a megaphone for a deaf world, for the saints undeniably witness that following Jesus Christ actually leads to the full flourishing of human life. When I read the biography of Padre Pio, I want to enter into each Mass like he does. And when I read the writings of John of the Cross, I want to renounce the worldly things for Jesus. When I watch the two carol films about John Paul II, I am greatly encouraged by how God can use the most ordinary nobodies to shape world culture for generations to come. I once heard it said that evil people, like dictators and conquerors, are actually all the same. Boring. Cardboard cutouts of each other with no personality. Whereas the saints are all completely different and exemplify the plurality and diversity of God's spirit. Just look at how different the four famous St. Teresas are. Teresa of Avila was an extrovert and a reformer. Teresa Lazier was introverted, humble and never left a convent. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, a.k.a. Edith Stein, was an intellectual and a martyr during World War II. And Mother Teresa was a global icon of humanity's goodness in our darkest century. Yet all these saints and the hundreds of others exemplify what a life poured out for God looks like, and indeed makes a life given over to God attractive. Perhaps recovering the saints can powerfully break the spell of those lifeless parishes we mentioned earlier, and fill Catholics with a zeal once again for a passionate sort of holiness. Certainly, in my own life, the Catholic men and women I draw inspiration from are those who actually have a love for the saints too. Holy people are attractive people, and the attractive Catholic is probably the greatest apologetic and weapon for our disillusioned time. And so we arrive at the end of our episode. 
I hope you found it helpful in some way and that despite today's challenging topic, you finish it feeling greatly encouraged. As mentioned earlier, let's hold fast to the victory of Jesus and remember that the eternal church is destined to overthrow all works of the enemy. While we may suffer greatly at present, we do not suffer in despair, but with expectant hope. Nevertheless, for the practical pilgrim exercise, I invite you to join me in praying for the persecuted church around the world. Maybe we can make it a focus for the next fortnight. I suggest picking a specific part of the world that you're somehow connected to. Websites like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors can point you in the right direction too, if you'd like to know more ways you can practically support our persecuted brethren. I will certainly leave links to these organisations on the Myth Pilgrim website. This and prayer aside, I want to encourage you to also spend some time reflecting and giving thanks for the incredible gift it is to be a Christian in the country that you're in. Maybe at this moment ask the Lord, what is it that you're asking of me? And how might I defend and promote the mission of the church? Hmm. Okay, pilgrims, till next time, journey forth, take care and God bless.